Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. If they say, you're right, you deserve better. Here's what I can do to fix it. Great. They want to work on it. But if someone says, yeah, you're right, I messed up. Like you deserve so much better. And then they don't fix it. Then they're telling you they can't give you them what you want. It's Violet Benson, your favorite meme queen and the big sis you didn't ask for, but need. Welcome to Almost Adulting. Almost adulting. Almost adulting. Are you ready? Hello, my beautiful ladies, and welcome to another brand new episode of Almost Adulting with me, your big sister, your best friend, and your host, Violet Benson. Wow, I am so winded from going up the stairs right now in my house. I am out of shape, and also this heat is killing me. I don't know what it is, but I swear when you turn 30, summer is no longer for you. I'm sure other people are really into summer. Maybe it's because I'm from the Middle East. So I grew up in the sun and me and my whole family, we despise the sun after being in front of the sun most of our lives. Well, I guess because technically my parents originally are from Russia. So they love the cold, just like our cold hearts. Yeah. So I am so not into summer. I'm ready to cancel it. So if anyone wants to start a petition with me and just go ahead and cancel the sun. Well, you know, not the sun. The sun is good for you. Let's go ahead and cancel the heat. I get it. It's global warming, blah, blah, blah. I don't care. Let's cancel it. Okay. You know, you guys are so powerful. All the keyboard warriors, so powerful. So let's start a real movement and cancel this heat, you know, because I'm, I'm done. I'm over it. It's not fun. I'm not enjoying it. My whole house has open windows, which obviously is one of the things I asked for when I first bought the house. And then every summer I complain about the same thing and I don't make any changes, like get curtains. And then it's just, you know, it's really my fault. (laughs) So in conclusion, (laughs) it's my fault for complaining about the same thing over and over again, not making any changes. So glad we got that out of the way. In other news, today's episode is with this amazing guy. His name is Guy Wench. I actually found him from his popular TED Talks. I've talked about him numerous times throughout my podcast episodes. And actually, we recorded this episode a while back. But the week I was planning on posting the episode, for some crazy coincidence, I don't know how, another podcaster posted the episode and she's a day before me. So I didn't want to have similar materials. So I ended up having to wait a couple of months before I was able to finally post this episode, but no big deal. Everything worked out because I figured that closing the month of August is the perfect time to finally post this episode with Guy Wench, which I've been a big fan of him for so long. Today we'll discuss how to mend a broken heart. And if you missed Tuesday's episode, Tuesday is all about friendship breakups. So make sure you listen to that if you haven't already. Okay, before we get started, a few things. Number one, if you're wondering what's going on with my teeth, I still have not 
gone through and finalized my um, oral surgery. I'm still waiting on my second one while they're creating my new veneers. I had to go to the lab, I had to match everything. It's a whole process specifically because the type of teeth that I have, it's more of a complicated thing than other people that get a veneer since I have a special case and I don't have enamel on my teeth. I actually was supposed to get my second surgery today, my second oral surgery, but I couldn't find anyone to pick me up from the doctor after they put me asleep. So unfortunately, I have no friends and <laughs> we have to reschedule. No, I'm kidding. They're just all busy. They have a life. We have to reschedule for next week. So if you're wondering how I'm doing with my temporary teeth, not great. I apparently have gum disease, which another thing I completely miss. So cool. So yeah, I have gum disease. And with my temporary teeth, because my my gums, my mouth is not used to them and they're not like my regular teeth. Temporary teeth are the kind of teeth that right now, if I flossed, all my teeth will and the and the top will fall out because they're all attached to each other. That's basically what's happening. They're not individual teeth. So I can't floss. And because I can't floss or anything, and it's not just I don't know how to explain it, it's irritating my gums. So the point that I have never seen my gums this way that not only do I have a lisp sometimes when I talk and I struggle to talk, it's because my gums start to get swollen from the back of my mouth, the back of my teeth. Uh, sometimes they're like swollen different sides. Then in the front of my teeth above, they start to get swollen. They Every morning I wake up bleeding. They're just like, my mouth is filled with blood. So good thing no one's waking up next to me. And then it got to the point they're like residing up like um, they're soft at the top between the teeth and they're, I don't know how to explain, but it's, it's, it's really, it's huge redness and it's softness. Uh, it's just, it's a discoloration. It's like the bottom of the gums are a different color than the top of the gums. Yeah, it's, it's not cute. It's, uh, I have, I've had the last two weeks, I've had to train myself to smile where my gums don't show, which is not my normal smile. I have pretty gummy smile, like horse teeth. <laughs> <laughs> just why not laugh at it <laughs> what are you gonna do you know there's worse things in this world so what so i have gum disease <laughs> and i have no teeth <laughs> and i was born with no enamel whatever <laughs> i have been taking percocet for the pain so that's been really cool uh i understand <laughs> why people love pills they're great i've, I've gone years without taking any because I have an addictive personality. This time I couldn't resist. <laughs> I shouldn't say that either. <laughs> but shout out to Ferguson. <laughs> okay, now last thing, I'll make it quick before we get started, because there was this one really rude review that was like, I don't give a fuck about her teeth. <laughs> she talks too much in the beginning. It's like she either is too confident, she's either too cocky or she's too insecure. It's like, girl, it's like, bitch, which one do you want me to be? It's like, I swear to God, if you're confident as a woman, other women come at you and they're like, you're cocky instead of supporting one another. So then you try to humble yourself. You try to be modest and you put yourself down as well to make those other women feel better who are insecure themselves and they're projecting hands. And then and then they come at you and they go, you're so insecure. <laughs> Lift yourself up. Oh, no, don't be sad. You're so cute. You're so this. It's like you're the one to put me down. <laughs> Which one do you want? You can't win. So if you are listening, please I totally appreciate all the DMs you guys sent me of how much you love my episodes, but I would love if those DMs turn into five-star reviews. It really does help me in the charts when you do that. So, And it gets rid of the negative 
reviews that I get about mispronouncing things, even though I'm foreign and deaf, and that's why I struggle to mispronounce things. And also I get shit for, I don't know, for existing, whatever. So <laughs> let's dive in really quick to like one pop culture thing that I just want to dive into, and then we'll get started with Guy Wench. I just really wanted to talk about Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson. I know, super original of me, but hear me out. Okay, we all know by now that Kim and Pete unfortunately broke up a few weeks ago. So whatever bets you guys were having, pay up. But it was never really confirmed why. Not that it's our business, but I'm very nosy. So allegedly, these two broke up because, quote unquote, the spark faded, which makes sense because like all things that start super quickly, they usually burn out even faster, although this one wasn't that fast. I mean, they were together for close to a year, practically. I mean, Hollywood years, it's like they've been together for five years. But during this whole romance, there was an apparent engagement rumor flying around. I feel like things probably got way too intense too quickly and Kim needed to take a deep breath. And like the Libra that she is, she was probably super into it and she loved the fairy tale. But once things got too real for her, she was just like, whoa, this is killing my, you know, a guy just sweeping me off my feet and this fairy tale and the attention that we're getting. But like, I don't think she was actually thinking of, you know, marriage and all these things. I mean, Pete's 28. Kim's 41, even though she looks younger than me at this point with her body after having four kids i mean wow but she has other priorities than pete and she's also recently divorced and she's probably still dealing with kanye but this is what leads me to my next point i think kim like i said was blinded by the d she was digmatized we all know this because even some other star recently was talking about getting digmatized by her ex so it's a thing we've all been there so for those who even listen to my spotify live show you probably heard me talk about this briefly last week on Thursday nights at 7 p.m. And if you don't already listen to my Spotify live show, you better fucking go and subscribe right now. It's called Hey Besties. And it's every Thursday at 7 p.m. Pacific time. And you get to, you know, listen to it live without any cutting or editing those nights. And then two days later, the episode gets posted only on Spotify. Anyway. We've all been there and made terrible decisions and stuck around because we got blinded by the D. Here, I don't think this was like a toxic relationship or anything like that, but I definitely think Kim was blinded by the attention and by the dick, but I do think her DTF single girl era has come to an end. And I do think Pete made the mistake of proposing because he was ready to take it to the next level and he loved the attention. I mean, it's no surprise, hands hello. He did this with Oriana after a few weeks. There's a pattern. He's definitely that. So it makes sense that he proposed to Kim. He also probably loves all that attention. He loves dating girls who are way more famous than him. That's the truth. And he, you know, he loves how they make him feel. And Pete seems like the type who can't be alone. And I actually do really feel bad for him for that. And for Kim, suddenly things felt too real and no longer was a fantasy. And that's when she realized it's time to break it off. So I think that's why they broke off. And I think that's why she's probably doing a little bit better. She obviously probably misses her best friend, but I'm sure she, I think she knows she's made the right decision because she was just looking for a rebound. She wasn't looking for another husband because she's probably super traumatized and she, she still needs to heal from that and take care of her kids. For Pete, it was just a love story he didn't want to end. And I also saw some people making jokes about Pete, like the supposedly he's in therapy or, or he had to go to check into a facility or to go to counseling. You guys, I said this before my Spotify show. Hey, besties, and I'll say it now. 
it is not okay to make fun of someone for needing therapy or needing help when there are mental health issues. Pete has been pretty open about his mental health issues, so it's not a surprise, but you should never judge someone just even if you were with somebody for a month, two months, three years, I don't care. If you need to heal from it and you need help because you know you can't do it on your own, definitely seek help. Do not listen to other people who tell you that, oh, well, if you only dated together for a month, then after a week, you should be over it. No, if you need more than a week, more than a month, more than half a year, that's fine. Take all the time that you need. People don't understand that when we go through breakups, when we go through heartaches, when we go through any type of pain, it's not only specifically from the thing that hurt us. That's what people don't get. It usually triggers us to open unhealed wounds that we forgot about, that we hit somewhere in our bodies. And that's usually what's happening. So usually when you're going through a breakup, and this happened to me recently when I parted ways with a partner, it triggered my disorganized attachment style. And it triggered my attachment issues and feeling unloved and feeling abandoned issues. I felt more hurt and upset by this guy leaving me until I realized I had nothing to do with this guy. It had to do with my abandonment issues that I, I forgot that, that I thought I fully worked on that I didn't. And then you start to go through shame, which a lot of people go through this, the feeling of shame, because you feel shame that you're not over something that you should be over. And you feel shame talking to your friends about things that they're already sick of listening. So no, I congratulate Pete if he actually checked himself into something because he needed help. How self-aware of him and how amazing of him. And if you're currently going through something, and you need professional help, go get that professional help. Do not feel ashamed. It is normal and it is not, the pain is not from that specific occurrence or moment or person. It is so much deeper than that. It has to do with your childhood trauma. It has to do with your triggers. So go take care of that and take care of yourself. Because if you don't take care of yourself, you won't be able to really do anything else. And that's actually the perfect way to dive into this episode today with Guy Wench on how to mend a broken heart. Love you guys. Mwah. Hi guys, I'm Viola Benson. Welcome to a brand new episode of Almost Adulting. Today, I have an amazing guest. I've been a big fan of him for quite some time now. His name is Guy Wench. He's a licensed psychologist who works with individuals, couples, and families. Also, I know him from TED Talks. He is a leading advocate for integrating the science of emotional health into our daily lives, workplaces, and education systems. And he is also an author and co-host of the popular podcast, Dear Therapist, which is actually how I found you on social media. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. One of my favorite TED Talks of yours was in 2015, you spoke about the importance of emotional aid. Do you mind elaborating what that means and how you do that? Yeah, so basically the premise of that was quite simple. I'm an identical twin. So I came at it like a twin and I said, hey, Twins are really sensitive to favoritism. And here's this favoritism I see. We treat our bodies much more carefully than we do our minds. We do all these things for our bodies. We practice dental hygiene. If we get a cut, we know to cover it, you know, so it doesn't get infected. If we have a sprain, we know to rest it. There is no equivalent like that for our emotional health, for our psychological health. We don't practice anything regularly. We don't even know if we sustain an emotional wound. We don't teach our kids anything about how to practice emotional first aid or how to practice emotional hygiene. And there are absolutely things we could do that would improve our emotional health, our functioning, our happiness, and we're not even aware of them. 
Right. So I remember one of your TED Talks, you had this beautiful analogy and it's basically how if your physical health is not the best, then you rest up. But we don't do the same thing with emotional health. Like, let's say if we have a broken heart, we're just like, okay, let me get out there and date again. I'm having a bad day. I'm just like, whatever. I don't have to think about it. Let's just keep going. And we're not taking care of ourselves in that way. Here's a good analogy. If you're going to cut on your arm, most people can tell whether it needs a bandage a stitch or a emergency Uber to the ER. You know, we can really triage that quite well. If we experience something like rejection or heartbreak that you mentioned, most people have no idea what kind of impact that's having on other aspects of their lives, whether it's the fact that it's interfering with their ability to go to work or to function with their self-esteem, with their confidence. And they certainly don't know what the bandage would be in that case. And there are bandages we can apply when we're heartbroken or we feel rejected that will restore our functioning, restore our confidence, but we don't know that they exist, let alone how to apply them. And there's the analogy, we are so specialized in the physical and so unsophisticated about the emotional. To me, it means that we don't understand what emotional strength actually means, because we tend to interpret it as like having no feelings, like being stoic, like the action heroes. Terrible things happen and they don't crack you know, their face at all, they don't cry, they don't have any feelings supposedly about it whatsoever. So we kind of assume that the stronger you are, the less emotion you will display in certain moments. But actually emotional strength is not about what happens to you in the moment. That's almost like a physiological response, whether you cry or shake is a physiology thing. Emotional strength is about your bounce back, that when you get devastated, when you get heartbroken or when you're really stressed or really, how quickly can you bounce back? How quickly can you get yourself up from the floor when you're knocked down. That's the real measure of emotional strength. And it's not one we use. We just look and go, oh, she cried, she didn't, she must be stronger therefore. Like it has nothing to do with who's crying in the moment, only with what happens after. I agree because I would say as an example, it took me years to understand. I used to look at my father who never showed emotion as someone really strong compared to my mother who would show so much emotion. I considered her weak. And it was only until I got older, which I constantly copied my father, how he was with emotions. When I got older is when I finally realized that pretending you don't have emotions is actually what makes you weak. Being able to express them and then move on from them is what makes you strong. Absolutely. So I think due to the pandemic, uh, social media has been on the rise, but unfortunately people don't realize it has not made us closer. It has made us more lonelier. And you've spoken about loneliness and the effects that it has, but you have the story about you and your twin. And every time I watch the story, I watch you speak it, I, I get in tears. Do you mind sharing your story with your brother? Sure. So this happened when I, when I came to the US to New York to get my PhD in psychology. We were apart then for the first time. In our lives. We had, you know, we're twins, we spent all our lives together. And I didn't realize it, but I was extraordinarily lonely, which now when I say it, everyone would be like, well, duh, you just went to a new country and you don't know anyone. Of course you were. But it's amazing because I was in graduate school. I just started graduate school. So I was around people all day. And I had this mistaken notion of what loneliness is, which most people do, which is how many people you have around you. If you have people around you, you can't be lonely. But loneliness has nothing to do with that. In fact, a huge percentage of lonely people are actually married, have families. It's very subjective. It is only if you subjectively feel disconnected from the people around you that you feel lonely. And I was, and I didn't realize it. And then our birthday came. It's the first one as twins that we're not celebrating together. And all I wanted to do was talk to him on the phone. But this is before the internet. Phone 
calls that were international were really expensive and we couldn't afford more than a few minutes a week on the phone and our birthday we set aside 10 minutes we'll pay for because we just didn't have any money and the phone didn't ring and it didn't ring and it didn't ring and it didn't ring and i was devastated and i thought wow i've just been away for a few months and he's already kind of moved on you know in a way and this is before cell phones is when we had rotary phones that went on a hook and when i woke up in the morning i realized wow when i was pacing around my room kind of waiting for the phone to ring i kicked it off the hook so no one no calls could get through and so it's not that he didn't call it's that he wasn't able to and so i quickly hung up the phone and it immediately rang and he was livid he was what is going on i'm like well i you know you didn't call and i told him what happened and he goes but fine you saw i wasn't calling why didn't you call me and the reason i didn't is what happens to people when they're lonely i was convinced no one cared i was convinced everyone forgot about me and when you become convinced of that you don't reach out because you're already hurting why would you want to get hurt more so i just stayed with that suffering and stayed with that horrible pain that the persist that was person that was closest to me in the world had somehow forgotten about me which is obviously ridiculous in hindsight and he thought it was in the moment but it was that's what happened and loneliness was so profound for me that i literally was convinced that our entire relationship the person i'd been with in the womb somehow didn't remember our mutual birthday or didn't think to call and and you have to be careful when you're lonely because your mind will do that to you it will pay tricks on you and it will get you to think no one cares don't reach out there's no point and then people get stuck in loneliness for that reason that's not just the sound of that first sip of morning joe it's the sound of someone shopping for a car on carvana from the comfort of home that's a good blend it's time to take it easy like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes talk about starting the morning right just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget mm mm visit carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be convenient comfortable ah what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one in the coast guard we think it's all of the above and more but you'll have to find out for yourself visit gocoastguard.com to learn more yeah you end up creating a story in your head and it ends up becoming your reality and it's not always true and like i i love when you spoke about that because um and like that was my favorite part when when you said how your brother asked you well if you wanted to talk to me so about like why wouldn't you just call me and that's when you froze and it's like right because when you when you are lonely when you are depressed when you don't feel good about yourself you tell yourself that like nobody cares about me so you you you're too afraid to reach out because you've created now a lie in your brain that they don't care about you right. um and it's not a lie it's a misperception because you know yeah. if you know about it it's a misperception but the one thing i want people to understand and this is what most people don't know and what so to me upsetting about it is that when you are lonely it impacts your uh, immune system immediately and it's the equivalent chronic loneliness is the equivalent to your long term health of smoking 15 cigarettes a day it literally will cause an early death it's that our bodies react that strongly to it because we're social animals we need people around us and so loneliness isn't just like oh that's a shame or that person sad it's killing them and it's killing you if that's how you feel and you, we we have to get out of that misperception and and figure out how to take action and connect to people again
for the longest time when I had um, problems with expressing my emotions or understanding them or dealing with them, the only way I was able to tell that I was in a bad place would be when my physical health started to go down and I started to get sick because my immune system was really low because I was really sad. And only once I got sick, that's when I'd be like, oh shit, I'm, whoa, I'm not okay. Like something's wrong. I need to take care of my emotional self. So it's crazy how everything is actually connected. And that's why people, when people say like your body is your first home and you need to take good care of it because you're going to live in it forever. It's like, it's true. It's not just what you eat. It's the what people you're around you, what you consume emotionally, what you consume spiritually, like everything. Right. But the, what you were experiencing is what I was going through at that time in that story. And what most people go through is that you had to get sick to go, oh, maybe emotionally there's something that I'm missing or lacking or, or that's difficult. And, and that's what I wish people would. And it's going to be a while till we do because we're so behind. But this is what my work is about. Let's get people to realize that when you're feeling emotionally distressed, when you're feeling sad or lonely it sits there and it lingers and it's that is going to impact your physical health but it's going to make you miserable your quality of life is going to suffer your ability to work and function and think creatively is going to suffer you know there's one study that shows that when people had a thought exercise of just imagining that they were lonely they dropped immediately 10 iq points just from a thought exercise this is how we're impacted by these psychological things this is why we have to take them seriously so then what do you do when you're that moment? Especially the more you sink down, the more you, you feel like you're unable to get back up. So what advice, what tips do you have for people who are currently experiencing loneliness or low self-esteem or anything like that? Okay, so, so what you said is really important, right? When you sink down, it becomes really difficult to get back up. That's the challenge. Because the lower you sink, the more your insides are going to tell you, nah, it's not true, it's not worth it, you can't, they don't. It's going to discourage you and it's actually really difficult to do the right thing. When you're lonely, for example, you have to understand that there's a misperception going on that you will truly believe that people care less than they actually, actually do. And so what that does is it causes you to feel a little hesitant or resentful. And then when you reach out, you reach out in a way that's either too self-deprecating, oh, you probably don't have time for me, but, which is not, not an inviting thing, or too hostile. Like, you know, you haven't spoken to me in a month. And like, well, but you haven't spoken to them either. And especially when you communicate electronically, which most of us do these days, I always believe in like, add a smiley emoji at the end. I know it's stupid. People say to me, really, 12 years of school, that's what you have, a smiley emoji. But it actually is important because what it will do, it will, whatever you say, it'll pivot it. So if you're saying, I haven't spoken to you in a month, without that, it'll sound accusatory. I haven't spoken to you in a month with a smiley face, sounds like, oh, and I miss you. So it can really tilt the perception of the person who's reading it so that they get that you want to connect. And, and so be careful with how you message electronically when you're feeling lonely, because it might come off harsh, or even if you don't read it that way, read it as it might be read and, and then modify it. So it sounds inviting, like, oh, wow, we haven't gone bowling for a while. Let's go bowling. Oh, I'd love to have coffee and catch up. Do something that's inviting, that's up, that's positive even though that's not how you're feeling. And even though you're convinced the person doesn't care, that's much more likely to get you the result. What about people that just genuinely are currently experiencing low self-esteem? Do you have any tips of what they can do? Any exercises or something for the mind that they can help them? Yes. Just as an example, let's look at somebody who just got rejected by a romantic or sexual prospect, right? So they're feeling like, you know, when, when that happens to us, what we tend to do is we feel really bad and then Shame. we tend to do something terrible. What we do is we start to um, try and understand what happened by going through every shortcoming we have, 
everything we think is wrong with us to, well, maybe it's because I'm too this. Maybe it's because I'm not enough of that. Maybe it's because I'm short. Maybe it's because I'm unattractive. Maybe it's because I don't make enough money. Maybe it's because of A, B. And as we're already feeling down, we then go and feel even worse because we're literally going through the greatest hits of all our faults. We absolutely should be doing the opposite. What we should be doing when you get rejected, the quickest way to revive your self-esteem is a writing exercise. Specifically, make a list of 10 things, 10 qualities you know you have that make you a good relationship partner, if it was a sex date, sex partner, whatever it is, but things that you know you actually have, like you're a good listener, you give great back rubs, you have great eyes, you're actually really good in bed, whatever the thing is. Make a list of those things and choose one of them and write why it's meaningful. Write why it's important, why people have appreciated it in the past. That will remind you of what you actually bring to the table instead of the natural tendency we have, which is what to remind ourselves of everything that disqualifies us from the scenario to begin with. So that's one way to pivot things 180 degrees to a more emotionally healthy approach. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I've definitely been there whenever it doesn't work out with someone or like more than one person at a time, then you're just like, why am I not enough for any of these people? And it is hard. And also like with self-esteem, like even if you're feeling good one day, the next day you can be down again. Self-esteem fluctuates by the minute, let alone by the day. So yes, you can, you can have one great minute and then one thing can happen and you can feel bad. I, it's really the most unreliable construct we have, which we keep referring to because it's so dependent on everything that's going on, you know, on, on the outside. So, so yeah, that's not a, a great way to, to measure things because that'll move around. Why is it so hard to let go of relationship when you can tell, you, you know it's not working out, but you still want to somehow save it? People do that all the time. And here's what I say. It's actually, the, the science about this is very, very simple. You can save it maybe on one condition. The two of you are working together to save it. You alone cannot. Relationships are a dynamic. You can't fix it by yourself. And that's what people try and do. They go, oh, I'll try and be different. I'll try and modify. I'll lower my expectations. I won't ask as much. I'll ask for more. I'll do like you're working by yourself. It's not how these things work. These are a partnership. You have to recruit the other person to, hey, let's make this better. There has to be a dialogue about it where you're working with the other person. That's the only way. And, and people um, are reluctant to do that. Because they have this fantasy of a, you know, oh, but the person's so great, so this should be good, whether it is or not. And number two, they really don't want to go back into the dating pool because that can be really frustrating. So let's just try and stay with this as much as possible. So people have, are reluctant to give things up. But you have to understand something. Relationships at the beginning, those are, that's the honeymoon period. That's usually the best the relationship gets. Now, if you're with somebody who's willing to work with you and improve things, and over time, yes, you can get to much greater depth and it can be more meaningful. But if it started great, now it's kind of fading. And even you know that there are all these problems. What do you, what's the best case scenario there? Like how much do you think you'll be able to fix it? Someone told me before that the hardest part about dating is meeting someone new, but actually the hardest part about dating is letting go of a partner that's not right for you and knowing when to walk away. Cause that is the hardest part. Like why, why do we as humans feel guilty for whatever reason, when a relationship fails. I mean, scientifically, research shows it's more women, but I would say people in general. Why does it show that we feel like a failure and we feel guilty when it fails? We can feel like a failure when we get dumped is more likely, when we're the ones doing the dumping, because we're definitely hurting another person's feelings. And if we've been heartbroken in the past, we know that we might be hurting them a lot. 
Um, the thing is that, you know, we have to remember on both sides of that, the person who gets broken up with, the person doing the breaking up, relationships are always about the chemistry. They're always about the match. And you can think that this person is the best thing for you, but if you're not a great match for them, then A, by definition, they couldn't be. You're just going on, oh, but they look great or they sound great or on paper they're great. Um, and, and so it's about whether you fit with the other person. It's not about whether you're enough or, or too much. It's about whether there's an actual fit, the chemistry of it, the, the, the mutuality, the compatibility of it. That's the thing. Sometimes I can tell when something's not working anymore. It's because I'm not happy. And instead, I still focus on trying to mend the relationship or to make the other person happy, even though I'm so not happy with that person. It's always so hard for me to go. Here's your mistake. Your mistake is that if you're focusing, if you think the way to be happy is to make the other person happier, so then they will be better. So then you'll be happier. You're going about it a very you know, long way there. The best thing to do is to say to them, hey, what's going on? I feel that we're, things are changing a bit, let's see where we are and how we can work to kind of get back to where we were or to improve things. As long as a relationship lasts, you know, we grow, we evolve, we change, our circumstance does as well. So relationships have to change to meet those new circumstances and the new us and the ways we develop. So there has to be an ongoing dialogue about, hey, let's tweak this. And I know I was the one that was doing all the initiating, but now I'm really busy and I'm not doing it and you're not doing it. So let's actually talk about how we can take responsibilities here so that we're both contributing to the relationship or, or making it move forward. I mean, you, you have to adjust and tweak as you go. And then you have to find someone who will do that with you. Yeah, I mean, it is crazy how communication, proper communication actually solves everything. And even, no matter how much I even talk about it, when it comes to me and the people I date, like I freeze and I rather just create a story in my head on why it's not working out and just walk away than, than actually call and be like, hey, what's going on? What, what's happening with you? Because it's it's I almost rather get rejected by believing they're rejecting me than to actually ask them if they're rejecting me. I don't know why. Well, look, because, I mean, you're trying to save yourself the heartbreak of somebody rejecting you, which even if you were about to do it, it's going to hurt because that's, we're so wired for heartbreak that even if the person rejecting us is somebody we were just about to break up with, it's going to hurt our feelings, which is silly, but that's how we are. We're wired that way. But really the trick here is you have to catch things earlier you have to catch things at the first sign. And what we typically do is we excuse it. Oh, they seem preoccupied. Oh yeah, they're, they're busy at work. Oh, she's, you know, she's, she's got her parents in town or like whatever it is, she's worried about her sister. We give excuses to why we're feeling somebody not being as present or as excited or as engaged as they were. And we have to address it right away because that's when we can change things. Go like, hey, hey, you know, I noticed that this past week, you haven't been calling me when you get home and you're used to, is there something going on? Oh, no, I was just busy. And then you say, oh, cool, I get it. Just to let you know, that's something I really liked. I would really like for you to continue doing that. I really enjoyed it. You know, like you, you want to say that early on when they're still in it, as opposed to when they drifted and they're not in it. And then they're like, nah, you know what I mean? And so when you leave it too late, it becomes scary because you feel the distance is too great. And then if you bring something up, they might not be there. They might actually, and they might want to work on things. But you have well, to catch it early. When is it appropriate to be so communicative? Because it feels like I think some people don't feel as comfortable if you're just in the beginning of talking stage. Five minutes show. into the first date is okay. where it's where. And here's why. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. I'm using, I'll use a specific example. People always say, that, oh, I can't bring it up. We've only had a few dates. I'm going to be that difficult person who brings things up. I'm not saying you need to sit someone down and say, we need to talk. But you want to note lightly, humorously, briefly something that you're not pleased about. Here's an example. First date with someone, 
They show up, they're 10 minutes late. They don't apologize. They just start chatting and they're interesting and you like them. And so you're like, oh, I'm not going to be difficult. They're here and they're, and all you need to do in that first five minutes of that day, they say like, oh, was there a lot of traffic? And they'll go, oh yeah, I guess. And, and all you did there, and then you move on. But all you did is you noted to them, like, I'm going to ask about it if you're late. And the subtext of that is because I don't like it. I don't want to accept that. So you don't have to make a thing out of it. You just have to note it in the mildest way at the beginning. But when it happens a second time and you note it, and by the time it happens a third time, maybe a little chat is in order, even if it's just a third date. And you say, like, with a smile, hey, do you have an issue with lateness? We've had three dates. You've been 10 minutes late for every single one of them. It's really not that much of a big deal. I'm just curious. And you say it with a smile and they go, oh, yeah, I'm terrible with times. And then, but you've already earmarked that, mm, and that's not something I love. Do you know what I mean? You don't have to say it. You've already said it by saying it in that humorous way. But if you let it go, what happens is then you actually set the expectation with them that they are allowed to be late and you will not call them on it. And that's by date three, you already entered into an unspoken contract that you don't want to be in. And that's just one example of small things that happen right at the beginning that if we are not aware of, if we're not mindful of, if we don't catch and if we don't communicate about, are going to come back to haunt us in a short time. Oh, that's so interesting. And I also like how a second ago when you were explaining how you gave positive reinforcement. So instead of being like, you you don't do this. Instead, you were like, I like when you do do this. That makes me happy. Because that is that does give you kind of the pathway of like, oh, this is how I make this person happy. I should call more because they're they're thankful that I've been calling them. So I'll do that more. Right. That's way more motivating than why didn't you call me? You know what I mean? And like you can and that's a trick you can use in general. Anything you want to criticize with the other person, reframe it as a positive request. It doesn't have to be hey, uh, don't talk over me when we have the guests for dinner. It can be, you know, I really like the rhythm that we have when we have guests sometimes where you're talking and I'm talking and we kind of compliment each other without talking over each other. That's what they were. You want to say something that makes it sound appealing, that version of the appealing as opposed to highlight the version that's not. Okay, I like all of that. But I think whenever I listen to good advice like this, it starts to make me think like about somebody, let's say I, I no longer talk to, and then I'm like, oh, wow, this makes sense. Then I can fix this instead of my brain going, now I understand what was wrong in this past relationship. I'll take this knowledge to my next relationship. Because I, so I think it's a mistake that I make and a lot of other people make where we listen to good advice. And we're like, okay, now I can finally fix this versus being like, wait, it was never meant to work out with that person anyway. Just take this knowledge to the next person. Yeah, look, I agree with you if it's somebody you had already broken up with, but if it's someone you're still with, first try and fix it. But you have to, again, keep, you have to communicate about things. You can't just expect them to read your mind, which is something we tend to expect people to do. They won't, yeah. unless, and it's not just they won't read your mind. They'll think like you must be cool with it because you're not bringing it up. And so, and you haven't brought it up. So that's a fair assumption on their part. They don't know that you're not cool with it because the last time you brought it up was six months ago and it happened five times since then and you didn't. So you must have gotten over that and you're okay with it now, which is what the other person's thinking. Yeah, but when a person says things like, yeah, I know you're so right. Like you deserve so much better. I've been reading that that is actually a red flag because if they're not, if they say, you're right, you deserve better. Here's what I can do to fix it. Great, they want to work on it. But if someone says, yeah, you're right. I messed up. Like you deserve so much better. And then they don't fix it. Then they're telling you they can't give you them what you want. And when somebody uses that language, which that passive language, nothing to do with me, you deserve better. Like, you know, don't look at me for the solution here. Look at them for the solution and say, 
I'm so glad you're saying that. What do you think you can tweak that would be, that would show me just a little bit of improvement? In other words, you want to give them a little challenge that they can meet uh, rather than a huge one that they cannot. Maybe this week you can actually call me four times. Does that seem fair? Like, we'll start that way. Like, you know, like, and then they might go, oh, well, like, but, you know, hold them, hold their feet to the fire. If they're saying like, oh, no, you're right, then, all right, put up them, number one. Number two, always look at actions. Words are terrific. They don't say much. Their intentions don't translate into actual actions most of the time. So if somebody's saying you deserve so much better, even if they're then saying I will do better, let's see. And there's an important, important moment there that I just want to highlight. When someone says to you, no matter what the issue, yes, I will do better because you brought it to their attention, you have one thing to look out for. The next time is crucial. If the next time they do better, reinforce it. If the next time they don't, you cannot ignore it because they'll know you're ignoring it too. You just had this conversation a day ago, a week ago, a month ago, wherever it is. You have to say, hey, 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 you said you would do better here. Can you please do better here? If you don't say that, you're saying, you know what? You can do whatever you want. I'm not gonna bring it up. And, and so you, once you kind of set an expectation, you have to hold someone to it. Otherwise, they're gonna just dismiss what you say and they can just say all whatever bullshit they want to say, and it doesn't mean anything. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. How can somebody build emotional resilience? So is emotional resilience the same thing as uh, emotional first aid? Uh, no, emotional first aid is literal techniques that you would apply to deal with emotional wounds, like when you get rejected, making that list and writing a short essay about why this thing is meaningful, that's emotional first aid. That's the actual bandage. Emotional resilience is about our bounce back, as I said. And the way we build it, unfortunately, is by going through hardship, unfortunately. You can't build it on spec. When you go through difficult times, you have to use them to build yourself up. There's no one who hasn't been through some kind of pause, disruption, interruption, emotional challenge. I mean, we've all been affected by it. However we think about it, whatever we think it is, it affected our lives severely, you know, because life was severely disrupted and for some people it is in certain ways. So we've all been through a difficult thing. Now, the way we think about what we've been through matters. If you think about it like, well, this is horrible and I barely made it through and I, can, I could barely take it, even though you just got through it, then you're missing out on building resilience because you actually did get through it. So the much better message to say to yourself is, that sucked, but I got through it. That was really hard and I hated every second, 
but I managed. Those, there's a huge difference between those two statements. Both of them acknowledge the hardship. One of them highlights the fact that you got through it. The other one doesn't. And that highlighting is what will help you build the resilience. You also talked before about the difference between complaint versus confrontation. What does that mean? And also what is the correct way then to approach um, a partner into having a conversation when you're really upset? That's a great question. Now, it's really the difference I make is between a complaint and a criticism. Um, and what I say is that a complaint is a confrontation. You're telling somebody there's something you, do, you aren't pleased with. So they're going to get defensive because they're going to experience that as an attack or a confrontation because it is. Now, it's not the most terrible attack in the world, probably, but you're coming to them. If somebody comes to you and says, I don't like that you did blank, whatever the blank was, you're going to feel defensive. Acknowledging that means that if you know that ahead of time, and you want to get the results you want to get, then you will figure out how to craft the complaint in a way that will get you the result. So, for example, you know, you, you upset with them because, you know, their mother-in-law chewed you out and they didn't get in the middle and say to her mom, you know, stop it. Like they didn't pretend you, uh, protect you in some way. I'm just making it up. Let's say it's something like that. One way to go to them is say like, how could you do that with your mother? And just you, you lay it all out and they're going to get all defensive, but she's my mother. What do you want me to do? And you're not getting to anything that's going to be useful. One thing you can say is, I really appreciate that you're close to your parents. And I think that's a great thing. And it's a great model for our kids and all of that. That's absolutely great. It would really be helpful if the next time your mom is over and you see her criticizing me, that you step in and get her to stop because she'll stop quickly if you do it. It'll be an argument if I do it. That would be really, really helpful. And I think that would also help our visits with them go much more smoothly. So you started with something positive. You said very briefly what you would like them to do. And then you ended with something positive again. That, I call that a complaint sandwich. It's very digestible for the other person. They might not love it, but it's way more easy for them to hear than you and your mother, I can never get between you, what's wrong with you, like that, all that stuff is terrific, it won't get to a solution and, and it'll just go to an argument and you're actually criticizing their character rather than just behavior in a specific moment. Do you have any tips for people that are currently suffering from anxiety by going back to, the, to real life since the pandemic, obviously, made it very difficult for a lot of people and a lot of people now have more anxiety and it's been really weird for a lot of people to go back to normal life. Like, so do you have any tips for that? Anxiety, just to define it, is the, is a, a fear of something that's very, very unlikely and very extreme. We're not anxious about, oh, I'm really anxious that I'll trip when I go out. No, I'm anxious that I'll trip, break my neck, you know, like, oh, I'm not anxious that I'll go out and I'll talk to someone. I'm anxious that I'll go out and I'll talk to someone. I'll get COVID and die. In other words, it always is. No, but that's what anxiety is. It's worst case scenarios and ones which are very unlikely, but we, and they're not an immediate threat. That's what anxiety, it's not immediate. It's unlikely, it's vague, but it's out there. So you feel, but you feel it very strongly, like something very bad is about to happen. You're just not sure why or how. That's what anxiety is. Unfortunately, the one thing that feeds anxiety is avoidance. So the more we avoid the thing that makes us anxious, the more anxious that thing will make us. We are supersizing our anxiety by avoiding it. So if somebody, for example, has been afraid to go back to the office because now they're supposed to go back to the office and they're really anxious, I'm going to go there and I know people you know, are going to get me sick. I'm not going to get sick again and I'm going to get my wife sick and get my kids sick and my parents sick and everyone's going to die you know, whatever the, the narrative, and even if they're not articulating that, that's kind of the level of, of angst 
that goes on. So what they should do is do it gradually. If you have to go back to the office, take a drive to the office, park in the parking lot, start there. Then do that again and just walk up on a day you're not working and walk up to the entrance and just hang around the entrance. Go in for the first day just for half an hour if you can and just kind of get used to it. If you do those things in a gradual way, you'll be able to overcome the anxiety. And, but if you avoid it, then it'll just seem scarier and scarier. And that's how phobias develop. We just start avoiding things until now we're incapable of crossing that bridge or getting in the elevator or getting on a plane because we're just now at such an anxious point because we've avoided doing it for so long. So unfortunately, the only way to deal with anxiety is to kind of remind yourself that these are very unlikely outcomes I'm thinking about, and then get yourself to that place and situation so you're not avoiding it. When I do think of anxiety, I think a lot of times what's helped me is to try to dissect sometimes where it's coming from. Like, for example, it took me forever to get my license and I thought I, it was me being scared to get on the freeway. But then when I di dissected myself more, I realized it's not about driving. It was my anxiety about the fact that I have to be in control and I don't feel in control when I'm driving because I can't control what everyone else is doing. So it was so much deeper than that. And once I realized I had to do with my control issues and I could deal with that, then I felt more relieved and relaxed when I, and I was like, okay, I, I can drive because it's not about my fear of driving. It's my control issues. I can deal with that. What, was, what worked for you there is by doing that introspection, that self-reflection and figuring something really important out about yourself, you then redefine the anxiety. So it's not about going on the freeway. It's about the fact that when I drive, I only control one vehicle and there are all these other vehicles around me. That's the part that I find scary. And the minute you redefined it, you know, that's going to be true whether you're driving in a parking lot probably or so. And so suddenly it's less about the freeway. So now I can start driving slowly and do it in a way that's comfortable until it becomes more automatic. So I think that's a great way to, you know, I think the introspection and asking yourself, what's this really about for me is such an important question. A hundred percent. I agree with you on that. I actually, rec until recently, I've had weird anxiety that I didn't even realize was accumulating. And you're right. When you don't take care of it, it gets bigger and bigger because I was avoiding it. I had a weird anxiety about checking my texts and my emails. So I was literally missing all these people's emails and texts. And the more I thought about it, the more I was avoiding it, the more I was freaking out, the more I was piling up until one night I said, grow up. And I sat down and to like 5 a.m. I went through all my emails. It was all these jobs that I missed, but it was fine. I finally replied to all these people because my brain, I was like, they're going to be so upset at me that it took me so long to respond. But I'm like, every day that's going by, they're even more upset. And then it's weird, but I've been so much happier the last week, by, and I feel so much more relaxed, even though I'm so busy, because I finally went through all these emails that weren't even a big deal. But I don't even actually don't know why it happened. Because anxiety sucks. Anxiety is really difficult. It really impairs your quality of life. I mean, it really feels like something scary is about to happen all the time. It's a terrible way to live with it when you have really strong anxiety. And when you can take care of it by like, okay, let me confront it. And that's such a great example of confronting an anxiety. You didn't know exactly what it was that was causing it. You just know that it was getting out of control. So you're like, I'm going to do all of it now. And, and as difficult as that was, the relief you had afterwards, because now I'm not anxious because I took care of it. That is a huge quality of life shift from last week to, to this week after you did that. And it just shows that, yes, tackle the anxieties. Don't let them dominate you. One of my last questions is, I recently saw you talking about friendships and sometimes we have friends where we don't feel safe telling them our secrets or we feel like they're going to use it against us or things like that. Should you even call someone like that a friend if we don't feel safe telling them our secrets? Look, I, friend is a huge category. 
in, in, in my eye. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, it's like a baseball team. Um, you want people in different positions there. You want the friends that you can go and share the vulnerable moment with, get the emotional support from, kind of go and cry with if you need to go and cry with someone, tell them the shameful thing because you know you can trust them. You want some of those friends. You also want the friend that you can't trust with that kind of information, but they are great at hanging out and having fun at parties. They're a delight to be with. Or this friend that is really terrible at giving emotional validation and being supportive. They really don't have the language. They make them uncomfortable. But they're always up for a movie. And whenever you want to go to a movie, that's a great friend to have for the movies. So different friends can fulfill different functions in your life. The mistake we make with our close people, whether it's friends or partners, is we think they need to be everything. They need to be the entire team. Our partner has to be our friend, our confidant, our romantic partner, our sexual partner, our inspiration, our organizer, our parent, grandparent, child. like we they have to do everything. That's not reasonable, not for our partner, but not for a friend either. So the question is, if you have a certain friend you, you know, that you don't feel comfortable saying certain things to, it's not about whether they're a friend, but do they still have a function in your life? Are there, is there still value? add for you in that friendship. And to the extent that they do add value, then keep them in their lane and don't take them to another lane because they won't succeed in it. But in their lane, they can be a good friend. And as long as you know what that lane is, and as long as they're cool with being in it because they don't even know that they're in it, that can work. I actually love that explanation. I love that. And I wish more people had this type of view. I always have different categories for friends and I'm more of a loner in a way. And I have like, yeah, this friend I go out with, this friend I talk about boys and that. But sometimes I've had friends who've made me feel bad about myself for doing that. But I feel like it's been easier than that way to separate like boundaries. So it makes me feel more normal now that you explain it, that that's actually a healthy thing to do. Because sometimes then I would feel overwhelmed by friends wanting too much for me when they're just my going out friend or whatever. And they suddenly want to dump all their emotional things on me and they're projecting all their emotions on me because they're going through things. And it was just, it's, or like, why do you call me when you went out? Or you, you stop talking to this person. Why do you tell me? And suddenly you're just like, what? Jesus. I mean, when you have a friend like that, who's like, please account for your life to me. Like you owe me an explanation of why you were here and you didn't tell me why you stopped talking to that person and you didn't let me know as if they're your secretary or they're your parent that you have to, you consider them like, um, you know what? I, I, if there's some reason you thought I should tell you, but I, I also, I, I don't have to account for my life in that kind of way. You know, like that friendship did not, have anything to do with you. So, so if it was relevant for me, I would have told you, but it wasn't. So I didn't, but you know, you, you don't get to hear, but every move I make in my life, I don't ask you to explain every move you make in yours. Exactly. I like the fact that though, instead of telling people to just completely cut people out, if they disappoint you and said, you're just like, I know who this person is. And now my expectations are lower and this is the type of friendship we'll have. And that way you're still able to continue friendships with a lot of different people instead of just being like, you didn't call me when I needed you to call me because you're you're super busy. So let's never speak again. Right. But just one one correction. It's it's not that you don't need them. It's like in, that they're bad or that they're failing you. It's that they maybe not have the qualities to do that thing. Like I know a lot of people who are very compassionate people, they don't have the language to express it. So you can go on for half an hour about how your heart is broken and they'll look at you and they'll go, bummer. And that's so unsatisfying, right? I know. But, and, and you can see that they're so upset for you. They just don't have, so that's not a bad person, but that's not the person to go to when you need support because they don't have the language to provide it. So it's also based on the skill sets of your friends and what they're good at. Yeah. 
No, I like I like everything you're saying. Um, do you have anything to add before we wrap it up? Uh, one thing I would like to just, you know, you said you found me from my podcast. And, and one thing I think people can get from that podcast is it's life therapy sessions and they're takeaways that you can get from every situation, even if you're not in that situation. So if you liked any of the advice I'm giving today or any of the things I said, check out Dear Therapists. Uh, it's, it's a podcast and you, you know, you'll learn more things on that. To me, the more people know about their emotional health and about their psychology, the better. Yeah, of course. I was going to say next, where can people find you? <laughs> okay, very good. Well, there's one place they can find me, but also you can find me at guywinch.com. There are links to my talks and to my books and to other things, just guywinch.com. What's your most recent book that's currently out? My most recent book is How to Fix a Broken Heart. It's about romantic heartbreak and pet loss. Actually, the one before that is Emotional First Aid, which is the one I would recommend to most people because it's more of a basic, here's how to do this kind of book. Awesome. So everyone check out his podcast, check out his Instagram, make sure to follow him. I'll obviously put his information in the description of the bio of this episode um, and definitely get his books, subscribe to his podcast and check out his TED Talks, which I love. So thank you so much for coming on again. I hope you have a beautiful day and um, yeah, thanks for listening guys. Bye.